The other day, as always, I was scrolling through TikTok for hours on end. Then I came across a video that made me stop. A user called Call Me Atusa was saying that if you have ADHD and if you sleep with one hand bent in a certain way, that's a symptom of the condition. Did you know if you have the claw when you go to sleep, that's your ADHD? That freaks me out. She called it the claw. I sleep with my hand bent like this, so I started spiraling. Does this mean I have ADHD? But here's the thing. This thought process is a regular occurrence for me. I see a video that lists a number of seemingly ordinary traits and links them all to a particular mental health or neurodiverse condition. Last week, it was autism, and the week before that, it was borderline personality disorder. Someone on TikTok said, if you get upset because your crush doesn't text you back, you probably have borderline personality disorder. But like, if you're upset that your crush hasn't texted you back, it's probably more likely that you just want them to text you, not that you have BPD. I know this is relatable for lots of people, self-diagnosing through social media. It feels like the internet is all we have to turn to. NHS waiting lists are an all-time high, and private healthcare can cost an arm and a leg. Plus, there's a gender disparity in the world of neurodiversity. According to the National Autistic Society, autism is still diagnosed between three and four times more often in boys compared to girls. And when it comes to ADHD, girls tend to be diagnosed by the time they're 17, which is, on average, nine years later than boys. So, can you really blame the girlies for using TikTok instead? I'm Lily O'Farrell, aka Vulgar Drawings, and this is No Worries If Not, a deep dive into women and internet culture. Episode 5, Neurodiversity Online. Why are people turning to social media instead of medical professionals? Mental health TikTok really took off in 2020, which isn't surprising. You're locked up at home with no mental health support, and you have all the time in the world to confront the things you might have put on the back burner for a while. Dr. Jessica Rabin is a psychologist, and she works primarily with adolescents. So knowing what's popular on social media has become a key part of her work. I definitely noticed a trend of more mental health professionals coming on social media and talking about mental health, but also people seeking out resources. With regard to social media not being therapy, therapy is a very individual experience. So it's a one-on-one individual experience where for that 45 minutes, however long in therapy, You are talking about your personal experiences and the therapist is listening to your story and providing interventions specifically to you. Jessica is all over social media, pointing out what's fact and what isn't. And how one golden rule? Social media is not a replacement for therapy. She said therapy should be individualized. Everyone is coming to it with completely different life experiences. So there's no one video titled something like Three Signs You Might Be Autistic that can apply to an endless group of people. If mental health care is not accessible to individuals, 
social media can be a good place to get psychoeducation. So general information about certain diagnoses, certain interventions, maybe get language for what they're experiencing. Because I've seen so many times people comment on my posts or other people's posts and are like, wow, I've experienced this. I never knew there was a word for it, such as like intrusive thoughts, for example, is one I've seen. Dr. Jessica told me incorporating TikTok into her practice has become totally necessary. I haven't had my clients come in and say, I think I have this because I saw it on TikTok. It's more, I saw this on TikTok and I relate to it. Me in graduate school would have been like, oh my gosh, you're diagnosing off social media. Now, because I know it's part of the culture, I'll be like, show me the video. Tell me what you relate to about this. You know, why did this relate to you? I've seen this with ADHD a lot. A lot of my clients have come in saying, I think I have ADHD. I saw this TikTok. I saw this on social media. The kinds of videos Jessica is referring to aren't even coming from one particular kind of account or page. They are everywhere. Here are just a few examples. Did you know anxiety has a simple cure? Eight signs of ADHD in women that no one ever talks about. So let's talk about them. How to identify an autistic person in three minutes or less. Dr. Jessica says we all self-diagnose to an extent. Someone who wants to start therapy might say something like, I think I'm depressed or I'm struggling with anxiety. We do this with physical conditions too, like... I have a stomach ache, I think I have a stomach bug. Or in my case, I'm dying, I'm going to be dead by tomorrow, definitely, let me say all my goodbyes now. Anyway, Dr. Jessica said hearing out what her patients are saying they see online is so important. The last thing you want to do is totally dismiss someone. All of those things are absolutely valid. We need all those perspectives. But there's a big difference between a licensed therapist providing educational content about ADHD or autism and somebody talking about their own lived experience. And it's important to be able to distinguish which one is this. Um, The other piece of advice I always give is if it's very black and white statements, Nothing in mental health is black and white. So if people say things like, everybody that has autism does this, run. I told Jessica all about the NHS waiting lists. And she told me that this happens in the States too. So even if you're paying out of pocket, that doesn't guarantee access to support right away. Then we spoke about my different TikTok-inspired obsessions with various diagnoses. I felt kind of embarrassed, but she wasn't surprised. The one I see most frequently is three steps to cure your anxiety. And I talk about this all the time because anxiety is a natural human emotion. Like you don't want anxiety cured because anxiety actually has a function. And I always give the example, if a bear is chasing after you, it's probably good to feel anxious because that's a potential life or death situation. So it will be like three tips to cure your anxiety. And then it will just list three quick things. And I'm like, no, therapy is not one size fit all. Not every single intervention is going to work for every single person. We don't want to cure anxiety. We want to reduce it, make sure you're functional. Some of these videos can get a bit more sinister, though, particularly if someone is earning money from another person's suffering. I've seen a lot around trauma 
too. One video that comes to mind, it was like, if you can't lose weight, that's trauma stored in your body, do this exercise program. Weight is trauma? No, this is screaming wellness grifter to me. What I have seen is the videos that tend to go more viral when it comes to mental health content are the ones that have misleading information. I'm not going to say always misinformation, but they're quick to the point, maybe offer that quick fix, cure, say something that's really catchy. And it's like mental health is so much more nuanced, but that takes off. And people are like, oh, I saw this video of this person that has ADHD and they also tap their left foot oh my gosh, I tapped my left foot. I must have ADHD. And I'm like, no, hold up. Like that person's lived experience is probably accurate, but just because their left foot taps doesn't mean they have ADHD. Jessica makes her own TikTok videos too, but she's careful to make sure the mental health advice she provides doesn't disclose any of her patients' personal experiences. But I've seen other people online who are doing just that sharing clips or details of private therapy sessions on social media. What does Jessica think? I personally do not feel like that is ethical because when we're thinking about the therapist-client relationship, there's an innate power differential. And so the question I always bring up is, can a client truly consent to having their information shared publicly, even if it's de-identified, even if details are changed? And is that consent ongoing? What happens if they consented and then, you know, a podcast episode comes out and they know it's about them and they don't like what was said, can they revoke that consent? It seems like mental health is clearly very nuanced, but social media can be so black and white. It's not exactly a match made in heaven. So... What about neurodiversity online? I was diagnosed when I was 22 or 23. And it started actually because I was traveling in Sri Lanka and it was amazing having the best time. But I was having a really hard time with like social interactions. Like not having a routine was like feeling super overwhelming. This is Vivian Essabor. I've spoken to a few women who were diagnosed with ADHD late after years of struggling. From what they've told me about their life pre-diagnosis, most of them felt constantly dismissed. They were told things like, You're such a smart girl. You just can't concentrate. Vivian actually started her own journey by trying to get an autism diagnosis first. I was working for the National Autistic Society. And when you do the training, you know, they teach you about signs of autism and how to support people. And I just remember in the training thinking, oh, like, I do that. Like, I struggle with social scenarios. I struggle with change of routine. So I went to my GP and, like, used all the language from work. and was like, yeah, I want a diagnosis. So they referred me to the autism clinic, did the assessment. They was like, you don't have autism, but you scored super high for ADHD. Then they sent me to the ADHD clinic and then the assessment went from there. After her ADHD diagnosis, Vivian started to go to support groups but none of them felt right. I was always the youngest there, and I was always the only black person there. There was a lot more men. The majority were white, majority were 30 plus, majority were men. I don't think they made this group. I was thinking I would show up. Like, it doesn't feel like it was made with me in mind. So I didn't want to go. So Vivian decided to make her own group, ADHD Babes. It started as a Facebook group for black women and non-binary people and quickly snowballed. 
So ADHD Babes, we're situated in London, but because we do a lot of stuff online, we literally have people all over the world. Like we have people in the US, people in Africa, the Caribbean. So it's quite beautiful, like lots of people in the diaspora. Soon, ADHD Babes had a WhatsApp group, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and registered as a social enterprise. Vivian started to set up regular meetups too. We've gone to like theatre trips, we've gone to galleries, we've done in-person like cooking workshops, like cooking with low executive functioning. The thing that stood out to me the most about ADHD Babes was this statement they have across all of their socials and their website. They make it really clear that you are welcome to join whether you have a formal ADHD diagnosis or not. Vivian said within the membership, it's a pretty even split. People have either been medically diagnosed or they're self-diagnosed and on that long NHS waiting list. So I think it's about 60-40 of 60% of people being diagnosed. Because often people get diagnosed and then they start searching black women with ADHD and then they come across us. So it's often people that are like quite newly diagnosed and then, yeah, maybe around the 40% that are self-diagnosed and then are waiting. The fastest one I've heard pre-lockdown was a year. Now post-lockdown, I think the longest I've heard is four years. You could go to your GP, get referred for an assessment and then do a whole three-year university degree before you get that same assessment. It's just wild. But Vivian said it's not just about the waitlist, though. Medical racism can play a part too. In 2022, a study published in the British Medical Association found that over two-thirds of black people in the UK have faced discrimination from healthcare staff. That same year, the NHS Confederation introduced a new anti-racism strategy. I think a lot of black women will tell their stories of, you know, going to the GP and saying, I'm feeling this, I'm experiencing that, and just constantly being fobbed off. And I can understand the system is bursting at the seams, like there's a lack of resources. But below that lack of resources, there's also a lack of belief when we're telling our stories. Like, I know for me personally, I've gone to the GP and said, look, I'm in pain. There's something up with my period. It's like, oh, well, hormone change. It's very dismissive. I think our pain is very diminished. And also black women who experience sickle cell crisis, for example, they speak a lot about literally feeling like they have to beg for pain relief and like being seen as like they're over-exaggerating or, you know, they're doing too much. And that links in with the whole like behavioural character flaw thing. When a system meant to support you is failing, along comes people like Vivian, the Mary Poppins of ADHD support. She said that some people come to the meetups who are unsure if they even have the condition, but they're curious. They think they might have some symptoms and they want to speak to other black women and non-binary people about what it's like for them. Unsurprisingly, there aren't many spaces where you can do that. You would think that a condition like that would be pumped with resources. Like Even how many people have ADHD and end up in the prison system, it's like, surely you'd want to prevent these things. This is a thing, by the way. A report last year by the ADHD Foundation found that one in four people in prison have ADHD. Sorry, what? 40% of people in prison have ADHD compared to the general population, which is between 2 and 4%. That makes the condition 10 times higher in British prisons. It's so common that the ADHD Foundation are calling for offenders to be screened for ADHD when they arrive in prison. Like Vivian said, you'd think something that's so deeply affecting the country would be taken more seriously. 
But medical racism doesn't just exist in a doctor's office or a prison ward. It can start in school, too. When we think about kids with ADHD, the stereotypical image is Bart Simpson, a white boy fidgeting at his desk, being the class clown, or bouncing a ball against the wall over and over again. Vivian said in her experience, and for other members of ADHD Babes, their behaviour was labelled as a character flaw, before neurodiversity even came into the question. You know, you speak out and you're being aggressive, you're being an angry black girl. I know for me, like, they said I had anger issues in secondary school, so they gave me a counsellor for that. If you look back at it, it's like, this is textbook versions of ADHD, but then that can also be misinterpreted as us kind of being just extra sensitive or us being, you know, angry or aggy. And that's why I really love that Solange song of, like, mad. It's like, I've got a lot to be mad about, bro. Like, this is not good. Recently, I came across someone a bit older than me who was sceptical about neurodiversity content on social media. They said, (sighs) Everyone has ADHD these days. And I thought, maybe it's not that everyone suddenly has ADHD. Maybe it's just that more and more people are finding new, easier routes into mental health support. And maybe that's particularly important for women and people of colour. I asked Vivian about this. Sometimes we just need to take a step back and ask ourselves, why am I gatekeeping this? My own personal conspiracy is the minute people of colour and women started owning these labels, suddenly people have a problem. No one minded when it was just white boys in school having the diagnosis. Why is it so scary that there's more of a face to it? And for me, I think that needs to be asked more. You know, why are people so worried? What is the worst that's going to happen if more people have access to support? If there isn't enough resources, isn't that a problem for services? The concentration is often misdirected, and I think it's easier to be angry at people instead of being angry at systems that are failing people. I asked Shantae Joseph the same thing. She's a journalist, broadcaster, and host of The Guardian's pop culture podcast. Shantae was diagnosed with ADHD in her early 20s, too. Her employer paid for her to get a private assessment, and she said without that, she probably wouldn't have a diagnosis at all. Where was I getting that money? Because I wasn't making that kind of buck. So who wants to be waiting on an NHS for 6,000 years? And I just don't think there's anything wrong with that. Like, you go and you you buy a fidget toy from Amazon. Okay, nobody died. Just like Vivian, for Shante, the medical racism was so entrenched that she felt like she had to put on this mask before going to the doctor, like this armour or fake identity, to try and get them to take her seriously. I definitely feel like when I go to the doctors, even if I'm sick... I can't rock up looking barmy. I feel like I have to look nice. I have to put on my best, serious, current accent. I just feel like these people don't take me serious, period. I have to really assert myself. And I've always kind of felt like that in those situations where I have to go to the doctor and I have to be prepared to pretend to be like Her Royal Highness Shantae Joseph. Shantae follows women on TikTok and Instagram who talk about getting their ADHD diagnosis. And she relates in particular to their stories of being in and out of jobs. Some of them struggle to stay in employment with a rigid nine-to-five office life. 
And it just felt really relatable, like when she was talking about that and just the struggle that she had. And what I really appreciated about her was that she was very honest and frank about her experiences. And so it wasn't just like, oh, like, I can't concentrate. It was like, I am struggling to keep down this job because of X. I am struggling to regulate my emotions. Like that sort of stuff. I was like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm really getting this. And so after seeing that sort of content specifically from her, and this was before loads of people were talking about ADHD online. This was like, no one was really talking about it. So it was like, it was she was the only person I saw. And maybe there were people, but they were probably white and I kind of didn't, it, our experiences were very different in terms of how we were catered to. Shante said the longest she's had one job was a year. And that was only because the pandemic allowed her to work from home for some of that time. I was like, what the hell is this? I have to come, you mean something I have to come every day and do the same thing? That's outrageous. To be clear, Shante wasn't being let go from these employers. She was just moving around because she was bored. I remember even six weeks into like that job, I was like, looking for new jobs because I just got I, was, I felt so mentally understimulated yeah I, I always struggled to feel I guess comfortable in the workplace in a way that other people did after Shante got a formal diagnosis she took some time to really try and understand how her brain works and so yeah I quit my job I moved into my grandma's garage and then I kind of like basically started my life again in the pandemic pre-diagnosis Shante thought this chopping and changing between jobs was a character flaw because just like Vivian, that's what she'd been told. She was really involved in extracurricular activities in school, like dance, drama, and even youth parliament. But when Shante fell behind academically, teachers told her she was lazy and wasn't working hard enough. So she started studying overtime. I was literally a baby, but I would take a lot of caffeine tablets, a lot of energy drink. I would just be really cruel and unkind to my body because I used to think I was lazy. You're not concentrating because you're lazy or you can't figure this, figure this out because you're lazy, but you, I just wasn't being kind to myself. There was something else that was going on that made it difficult for me to really apply myself to what I was doing. It made it difficult for me to really focus and like get things done and like feel kind of present in the moment. But I didn't realise at the time that I just used to think I was lazy, like my teachers told me I was. Yeah, or it would be like, you know, you are such a smart girl but you can't concentrate seriously what more could she do she had a caffeine addiction as a child just trying to meet the supposed untapped potential and the burden felt huge the message shante was getting was clear this is your fault there's nothing else going on here it's just you you're not trying hard enough and so it doesn't matter how many nights sleep i got how many great meals i ate or whatever sometimes i just couldn't do it and I would just go and sit in the library for like 14 hours and I would get like one page of work done and be like, what am I doing, you know? It was just, I, I hate thinking back to that time. I really did torture myself for no good reason. The good news is that when more people share their experiences with neurodiversity, we get a clearer image of how something like ADHD can impact an individual. And it's no coincidence that as soon as women enter this space, we start to get a better understanding of how neurological conditions can impact a person's emotions, feelings, relationships with friends, family, and love. You know, all the girly stuff. You feel a lot more emotional. You feel rejection more. It's like someone can be like, oh, I don't want to hang out on Tuesday. And you could be like, fine. But then you have like emotional dysregulation in the mix. And it's like, you just told me to go and kill myself. Like, you know, it's so, it's like so dramatic. I asked Shante if her ADHD is something she feels like she has to give a heads up to, like when she's dating. 
Does she put it in her profile, for example? I mean, like, men are just terrible anyway. So I'm never the problem. It's always them. But I think when it comes to relationships, it's like you do feel things more intensely. You get swept up in people who are also as intense as you. You're left having to rebuild yourself over heartbreak. And heartbreak is, is like, it is devastating. Even now, my therapist is like, oh, you cut people off too quick, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I cannot afford a heartbreak. If my heart is broken, listen, I'm a freelancer. I work for myself. Time is precious. I have no time to cry in my bed. When the cost of living is going up, I don't have time for it. I can totally see why she's guarded about it. Shante told me about this comment one guy made on a dating app. I remember we were talking on like Hinge or something and he seemed like all right, but like, I don't know, he seemed like a bit of an arsehole. I think I brought it up and he was like, oh, you know, do you really have ADHD or are you just trying to be cute? I was like, ADHD is not cute. You think not keeping a job and cleaning my room is cute. It's the least cute thing ever to have. Men will turn everything into a fetish. Neurodiverse, she's an adorable, fidgeting, manic pixie dream girl. So what about autism? ADHD and autism often get grouped together and there is a notable crossover, but I wanted a definitive definition. Introducing Emma Pinnock, someone with 20 years of experience in special education under her belt and the founder of the Essential Educational Group, where she trains families and schools in how to manage neurodiversity. Emma said, in a nutshell, Autism is a structural difference to the brain, and ADHD is a chemical difference. Which makes sense, because ADHD can be treated with medicine, and autism cannot. Autism is seen as a social communication difference. You will find it written as difficulty, but I like difference, because actually we all have the differences. And so it's a social communication difference, and it means that the way that the brain sees the world is very, very different. So it might be that it sees the world in its finite details. It may be that the world becomes slightly overwhelming. It might be a sensory thing that's overwhelming. It may be a language part that's overwhelming. And then there's ADHD or ADD. And then with the ADHD stroke ADD, this is a chemical change in the brain. And so this is when the brain is not actually responding. If it's ADD, there is less hyperactivity, so they're missing information. And the brain is, from a chemical point of view, not picking up everything in the world. And they're seen as daydreamers and they kind of look inattentive and they're they're not quite focusing in. And then the hyperactive version, the ADHD version, is when the brain is literally just taking in lots of information and the body's moving and everything looks like it's on the go and nothing can be slowed down. Emma set up the Essential Educational Group because services like the NHS are so oversubscribed. And that means people can't always get the answers or the help they need, especially carers. Emma gives family training sessions so parents and grandparents can understand the child's diagnosis more. And she trains teachers in how to teach neurodiverse people too. She said that schools in the UK have training days monthly, but when it comes to special educational needs, you get a week a year if you're lucky. Just like Dr Jessica, Emma said she speaks to lots of young people who use TikTok to speculate whether they have autism or ADHD. And just like Jessica said, it's all about validation, not snobbery or shrugging it off. 
Emma thinks it's great that young people are accessing this information because if someone isn't being diagnosed until they're in their 40s, for example, then clearly something is going wrong in the system. But she also thinks it's important to consider the purpose of a diagnosis. What you really want is that a diagnosis is going to say, okay, you are definitely autistic, you're definitely ADHD, etc. But what it's not going to do is solve the impact of that on your life. That's going to be the same impact after that day. And I think sometimes people think that the diagnosis is a magic bullet, but it really isn't. A diagnosis might not give someone all the answers, and some neurodiverse people don't feel like they even need one. But for others, it can be a stepping stone. So why is autism being diagnosed, on average, three to four times for boys compared to girls? Historically, all of the research started with boys. And so there is a very male picture of autism. It's been explained in times as an extreme version of maleness. And so actually, if this is the angle that autism started off at, there's going to be a lot of women who are missed, unfortunately. Emma said young girls with autism tend to be slightly more withdrawn. They're stepping back and watching the world and how people behave so they can adopt what everyone else does. We all know the art of masking in one way or another, but it's generally believed that women do more of this because it's built into our socialising as women. Be quiet, smile and be a people pleaser. So if I'm in work, I'm going to be slightly different to how I am at home because that's a learnt experience. We know that I'm not going to be so relaxed, you know, I might do my hair actually or do something, you know. I'm going to be slightly different at work than I'm going to be at home. So there's a slight masking for us all. But when masking becomes impacting is when that mask never switches off, when there's not an understanding that this mask isn't your true self. Because girls are being diagnosed far later, they're masking for longer, which can be really detrimental to someone's health. Emma told me about something she calls a crisis point. That's when the masking is a real difficult place. And that's unfortunately what happens for girls is that their mask becomes their identity. And so as they get into the teenage years and the early adulthood, they realise that this other identity is actually who they are. And that's where the crisis point can sometimes come in for some girls. The videos I see about neurodiversity on social media are coming from so many different perspectives. And it's actually one of the best resources we have in telling the story of what it's like to be neurodiverse and black, or a woman, or non-binary, or trans, or anything that isn't the Bart Simpson ADHD cliché, or the Dustin Hoffman Rain Man cliché of autism. Ray, how much is 4,343 times 1,234. 5359262. He's a genius, right. Rain Man is a film that's widely celebrated for shining a light on neurodiversity, but Hoffman's character, Ray, is the epitome of every stereotype when it comes to autism. What he lacks in human relationships, he makes up for in intelligence. For most people, it's just not that black and white. I asked Emma about the gifts of autism and ADHD and the positives from having a diagnosis like this. She said this idea that autistic people don't have the same level of empathy as neurotypical people is a complete myth. 
She told me a story about a little boy she works with. I had one of the hardest mornings and I thought I had done the masking and I had thought that I'd gone into work doing okay and, you know, as we do, putting on your, your mask as you do. Not one adult that morning had said anything to me to say, oh, you look a bit off, are you okay? This little boy came and sat next to me and said, Miss, you're not okay today. And that was his empathy at work. And so we've got to understand that the empathy for people on the spectrum may look different, but it's definitely there. I'm not crying, you're crying. Anyway, I asked Vivian about what she loves about having ADHD. When we are having a good time, we are having a ball. We've done like quite a few link-ups and it just feels like the energy is bouncing off the walls. Vivian told me how she has a ton of subjects that she can just ramble on about at length, from the history of jazz music to hundreds of cool facts about fungi. She's like a walking encyclopedia. I think for me it's the creativity for sure, because I put my creative thinking down to, to my ADHD. I can't get bored. Like I don't remember the last time I've been bored, and when I'm when I am, then I find something to do. And Shante? I'm very enthusiastic about my friendships. I definitely feel like, I don't know, ADHD makes me a, lot of a, a bit of a planner. So I'm always planning and organising. And I guess like creativity as well, like, you know, that's a huge part of it. And also entrepreneurship. And I think as a freelancer, having ADHD and leaving my job and like working for myself was like probably the best thing I've ever done. I am making waves. Like I am feeling so much more confident in myself because I don't have like some boss telling me that I'm slow and I'm lazy and this is late and I'm not doing this on time or whatever. Like I, I'm actually good at stuff. And that's what I think my diagnosis helped me realize. When I first came to this episode, I'll be honest, I was very skeptical about the idea of self-diagnosing. I thought it could be another internet-born misinformation nightmare. But when the system let them down, both Vivian and Shante turned to the internet. Now, these women are thriving. Social media allowed Shante to realise she wasn't a lazy student with no work ethic. And it's allowed Vivian to build an entire community that's changing people's lives. What I've learned is that, actually, it's the offline world that needs to catch up. Thanks for listening to No Worries If Not. Special thanks to Dr. Jessica Rabin, Vivian Isabor, Shante Joseph, and Emma Pinnock. You can find help for the subjects discussed at the National Autistic Society, the ADHD Foundation, and of course, ADHD Babes. This is a Curly Media production. 